Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. The scripture reading for this Sunday is Genesis 2, 7 through 9, and 15 through 25. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded to the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, God. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series called It's Complicated. It's a three-week series all around some of the more complicated relationships that we have in life. Uh, Next week, we're talking about our family relationships. The week after that, we're talking about friendship. And today, we're talking about romance. And um, exactly what you're thinking is correct. There's one person that's an expert at romance. It's this guy up here. Um... You know, it's, uh, romance is an interesting thing because the reality is we have, a tr- we have tr- difficulty thinking about what it actually might mean. And before I jump into this, I just want to acknowledge this room. When we first talked about planning a church, starting a church, we were like, I would love it if we were different people all across the board. And Ted and I, we put, put that down on paper. How cool would it be if we were just a mixed bag? And the incredible thing is we actually are. We have people in this room who are single and they're wishing that they were married. We have people in this room who are married and wishing that they were single. (laughs) We have people here in this room who have gone through divorce. We have people in this room who have lost a spouse. Um, We have people here who are single and are completely content in that. And you know what? That makes it complicated, but that's also, that's the gift, is that we get to learn with one another. We get to learn from one another. And so I just want to acknowledge this here in this room. And so romance is a complicated thing. I spent the last couple of weeks asking people, uh, what, what comes to mind when you think of romance or give me a definition of romance? And I got all sorts of answers. 
But m the most common response was just the general look of confusion, um, especially for men. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Romance. So we cobbled together an idea of romance. We kind of put it together from different sources, from maybe the movies we see, the books we read, songs we hear, maybe the hopes that we have. We, we cobble it together, and we actually build it up to be this huge, great thing that it's just like the doorway that we walk through to experience total happiness and bliss, where one day we're going to find our soulmate, we're going to look deeply in their eyes, and we're going to hear them say, you complete me. Oh, romance. And the reality is this thing that we've manufactured, this thing that we create, this pipe dream, ends up betraying us. It ends up turning on us. I remember when Jen and I were first dating, we would spend hours just cuddling with each other. We didn't need to talk. We just needed to look each other in our eyes. We knew exactly what the other person was thinking. I remember being jealous of uh, the people that Jen gets to spend time with. Like, oh, how lucky they are to hang out with her. I remember carrying her over the threshold and us unpacking our wedding gifts, feeling like we were just two kids playing house together. Just the excitement, the romance of it all. And then things start to change. Our idea of romance starts to change. We start noticing little quirks that we've never seen before, like, oh, do you always eat your cereal with your mouth open? I've never noticed that before. Oh, I didn't realize how messy you are. Oh, Jen, I don't know if you've ever known this, but you know when you sleep, your body turns into like 140 degrees? And it's, it's just like someone's baking a ham underneath <laughs> our bed. And it's really hard to sleep. Isn't that interesting? Uh, there's that, you know, the, the, the fun parts of discovering romance, the reality of romance. But then there's also the deeper parts. I remember for us, our first year was just realizing the expectations we had of romance and then the reality of it. And in particular, I remember one conversation that Jen and I had on a back porch where we actually verbalized the thing that we had thought, which was, I wonder if there's someone better suited for you out there. This idea of romance, of finding the perfect mate who will make me completely happy. And this idea of romance betrayed us. Um, the reality is, is we have the opportunity to create a vision of Romance in marriage, not built on other influences, but built on God's word. And when we see that, we discover that a lot of the things that we have created around the idea of marriage and romance were never God's intentions or God's promises. To have a, a relationship that is suited to make me happy at all different stages of my life, even though my happiness is a moving target. It's a, it's a complicated thing to put on someone else. And so we're going to look at Jesus' approach of talking about marriage, primarily marriage. And, I, and knowing this room, I know that many of us are in different places. But I think as we hear how Jesus described marriage and how Genesis described marriage, it's going to bless all of us in our own relationships. And so when Jesus was cornered and asked about marriage in the book of Matthew, Jesus' approach was to dodge the original question and start talking about something different. And what he talked about was, you want to know about marriage? Well, let's reel it back all the way to Genesis chapter 2, and let's look about what happens there. I don't know if you know this, but Genesis 2 is actually two different, the book of Genesis has two different creation accounts. Genesis 1 is like the 10,000 
uh, foot view of life and creation, how God created the cosmos and the universe. And Genesis 2 really gets focused in on this place called Eden. And it starts describing life in Eden. And in doing so, we find in Genesis 2, 8, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put the man he had formed. This uh, word Eden, this is really important, this word Eden actually means delight. So God created this world for delight. That God created you and me, everything in this world, as an exercise of delight. That he saw this world and rejoiced, oh, it's so good. And some of us just need to realize that, that God might look at you with delight. But also, God created you and me, God created Adam for delight. That it was God's purpose that in this garden they would experience the fullness of life. That our delight and God's delight was all a part of the equation. It was all part of God's intended purposes. So godly romance should be marked by delight and purpose and wonder. And this is how uh, God intended that marriage and romance should be. All, there's a lot of debates about marriage that I don't care to really talk about. What I care to think about is what is the purpose of godly romance? What is the purpose of marriage? And I want to propose that Eden, the account of Eden, shares us four different purposes of godly romance. That there are four different purposes that we see. Uh, this is, it came from a book I read called Loveology that I recommend. It's an interesting read about romance and love. But in this, I pulled together four different purposes of godly marriage. And the first one is companionship. Do you know the first wrong thing that God saw in all creation? It wasn't when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sinned and everything fell apart. It was actually that God saw something with Adam that wasn't right. In Genesis uh, 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. If you remember in Genesis 1, there is this creation, and it's like this, this symphony of creation, and God and every your friends going, oh, that is so good. That is good. That is good. And over all creation, that is so good. And I like to imagine that, uh, that God is looking around, uh, around this world, and all of a sudden stops there looking at Adam and goes, this isn't right. This isn't, this isn't how I intended it. This isn't good. And so God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Why is that? Well, if you remember back in Genesis 1.26, uh, this is how humanity was created in that more global perspective. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So we've talked about this before, but humanity was created in the image of God. All of humanity created an image of God. Regardless of your background, your makeup, you are created and loved and valued in the image of God. But what was interesting for me in thinking about this is the plural pronouns. Let us make mankind in our image, our likeness. There's some, uh, there's some scholars who have talked a lot about what is that about? Is it about God and angels, perhaps? But the most common theory is that this is actually God speaking within the Trinity. When God the Father looks at the Son and the Holy Spirit and says, 
What if we were to make humanity in our image, in our likeness? So we were created not by a bored and lonely God. For all of existence, God experienced in beautiful, joy-filled, harmonious relationship that God in and of Godself is community. So when we were created, we were created in that image of community, unity, purpose, joy. That's how we were created. So of course, when God would look at Adam by himself, they'd go, this is not how it was created. This is not how it's meant to be. There needs to be someone else. And so, uh, so relationships were birthed in this world. Um, if Adam was to be an image bearer, he can't be alone. So there's this notion within Christianity that we often talk about, we, have to, we often uh, maybe even sing about, that all we need is God. All I need is God. All you need is God. And I think God might interrupt and go, nope, not really. You also need relationships. That we were created so that we would be, uh, find joy and purpose in the context of relationships. So isolation and loneliness is never God's intent for anyone that we were created for community. And that is how we experience so much delight. And marriage is about that. A marriage is about a companionship. It's about, uh, it's about having someone who's walking all of life with you, who's your cheerleader, who's your encourager, who's your truth teller, and who ultimately is your friend. Uh, I've heard that it said that true romance is friendship set ablaze. And I, I feel like, thank you, Hallmark. That's actually a little bit true. <laughs> but what's unique about God's design for companionship in marriage is that this companionship is about a lifelong marriage. It's about that God's intent is that people walk through all of life together. And um, there's a notion within our world today that monogamous lifelong relationships are, are, are an option, that uh, they're out of date, and I think God might say, they're hard, <laughs> but this is my purpose. I know for in our own life that if Jen and I were just dating for these last 11 years, we would have pulled the bail cord several times, mostly Jen, for good reason. Uh, but um, just the fact that we've experienced this committed companionship has opened us up to experience purpose and joy that I know that we would have been cut short if we would have looked after our own temporary happiness. Um, and oftentimes, I think when we would have bailed, we would have pulled away the, the bail cord, we would not only be running away from each other, but maybe we'd be running away from ourselves. And it's in this, this committed companionship that God does this work of refining and making us uh, more into his image, more into the Trinity's image. Um, I've come to believe that the best things in life exist in commitment. The best things in life are reserved for communion. And romance exists in committed companionship. But this longing is not always fulfilled uh, by a romantic relationship. Uh, the Bible oftentimes talks about the gift of singleness. That the Bible actually says that being, being single is a gift. And I know some people go, I'd like to return the gift. Thank you. Uh, if that's a gift. Uh, but there's a reason why it's called the gift of singleness. It, and um, many of us have a trouble with experiencing it. And part of the problem is that as a culture, we have built up marriage too much. 
In some ways, we've destroyed marriage, but in other ways, we've built it up too much. That if you want to have a complete life, you have to be married. You have to have 2.5 kids. Um, and the reality is that you could have truly significant life as a single person without having children. That if we remember that Jesus came to show us the abundant life and Jesus himself was single. Our Savior was single for a reason to show us that it is not necessary for us to have that. But we were created for companionship. And so it doesn't have to be through a romantic relationship, but we were created to experience friendship. And that's one of the purposes of marriage. The second purpose is that of gardening. In verse 15, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. In verse 18, then God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This word helper is, is, is kind of a tricky thing. This idea of uh, being a helper, it kind of sounds like Adam needed a gopher a personal assistant, kind of like an Instacart uh, relationship. And uh, the reality is that this word helper is not some chauvinist idea. It's actually the opposite. This word helper, the actual uh, Hebrew word is ezer. And you'll find this word ezer throughout the Old Testament. But this word was used to describe when someone was inadequate, like Adam was, inadequate to do what he was called to do. He had to have help. He had to have a helpmate come alongside of his own insufficiency to fill the void. And so this is actually not talking low about Eve, but it's actually doing the opposite. It's actually saying that, that Adam was in need. So uh, in battle scenes uh, in the Old Testament, when the battle was raging and this, pers- this, this army was about to lose, they would call out for help. And they would have reinforcements come. Those reinforcements were Ezer. So it's, it's actually about uh, being someone me, me, having their needs met. The character in the Old Testament that was most often used, at, uh, this was used to describe them was, uh, was God. That God is our helper. That God meets us in our needs, meets us in our in insufficiencies, and helps provide for us. And so Adam had a calling to tend this garden, to work it, but he couldn't do it alone. And so God gave him a helper. And so I'd like to broaden the idea of gardening for a little bit more than those of us who don't have a green thumb. To garden means to go into this world and to cause it to flourish. It takes attentiveness, takes care. And so for us, we were placed in the gardens of this world so that we would tend it so that we would cause uh, life to flourish here in this world. And the reality is, for this is not only the case for Adam, but this was the case for the original couple, that they together were called to garden this world. And this reminds us the purpose of all marriages is for us to cause this world to flourish. A great relationship always will have a greater purpose. A marriage was never intended to be the end of itself. The marriage was never intended that the purpose of marriage is to make one another happy. That is, that is incomplete. The purpose of a marriage is that we be dropped into the gardens of this world and cause this world to flourish. That every marriage is placed into the gardens for that purpose. And for me, just as I have experienced some of the most self-centered people I've ever known, people who are mostly cared about their own self, are some of the saddest people I've ever met. And they're also, they're just boring. (laughs) 
And the same might be the case for relationships. Some of the relationships where the sole purpose of your relationship is just to take care of your comforts and to take care of your own happiness and just to, to, to kind of hedge off the rest of the world from yourself, those are some of the saddest relationships that we might experience as well. And those relationships also might be a bit boring. The reality is that we were created to experience God's delight, and that exists when we tend the gardens of this world. A great marriage has a calling, it has a mission, it has a selfless purpose. It causes this world to to come forth with life. And I've seen marriages that tend the gardens of this world. I've seen couples who have used their home to foster children. I've seen couples, older couples, who see newlyweds who are, you know, just wide-eyed, and they use their marriage to pour into them, to care for them. I've seen couples lead high school groups. I've seen couples care for aging neighbors, and all of that is tending the gardens of this world. It is a purposeful marriage, and that is something of delight. And the unique thing is those couples who are giving of themselves also are experiencing joy in life that many of us don't experience. So a word to all the single people uh, who are hoping to get married one day. I just want to encourage you, if you want to know if you have found the right person, look to see how they garden this world. Not how they garden their career or their wishes, but see how they garden this world and see if you were to look at their life and how they treat and their mission, and their purpose in this world, if you see that and go, I want to sign up to be an Ezra. I want to help that happen. I want to help that greater purpose flourish. I want to enter into that. And that will be the key for you understanding if you have found the right person. And if you see someone who's not tending the gardens of this world, I wouldn't expect a marriage that that much different. And so for many of us who are maybe uh, experiencing the boredom of marriage, or hoping for maybe some more life, what I'd encourage you is go do stuff together. Go give of yourself together and see if romance and delight might be fostered there, that we were created for a greater purpose. The third purpose of of godly romance was that people could become one. In verse 21, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed it up Uh, the place with flesh. From this rib, a woman was created, and I know some women go, I'd rather not be created by a rib, especially from a man. Men were created from dust, so there's kind of a trade-off there. Um, And what was Adam's first response to seeing a woman? He broke out in song. From, From this narrative, all of a sudden, poetry emerges. When words don't do justice, this longing for romance just bubbles up and he bursts into song. And we still see this today. I can't tell you how many campfires have been ruined by this. People are hanging around a campfire, everyone having a good time, and then some doofus with a guitar thinks he's going to impress the girls and breaks into song. You're like, oh, thanks a lot, Adam. (laughs) But we see here is that he bursts into poetry that he is compelled by romance. In verse Uh, 23, this is what he says. Now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. What is this song really about? What this is saying is that this other was created from within me. That this is a poem of unity, yet diversity. Distinction, 
but harmony. That's what this is about. What's really interesting to me in the, in the account of Genesis 2 is going through this account step by step. This is what happened, this is what happened, this is what happened. And then in verse 24, it departs the narrative, and then it has commentary over the narrative. In verse 24, it says this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and, uni- and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. What I want to talk about is this idea of becoming one, of being united. The word for that is ichad. And that word actually means to be fused together at the most deepest parts. It's the same word that would be used to describe when water hits dirt, it makes mud. It's really hard to separate it at that point. And so the way in which we're seeing this is that marriage is meant to create ichad. It's created to fuse people together, to create unity. And one of the primary ways in which that, is hap- that happens is through sex. This word, ichad, is describing something really specific here, the two becoming one primarily through sex. It is important to realize that our sexuality was beautifully created by God, that God created us to be sexual beings, and this was a wonderful and a powerful gift. And sex has the ability to unify. And the flip side is also true, that God wants sex inside a marriage not because he's a bummer, or the purity police. God wants sex inside a marriage because it's so powerful. It has the ability to make people one. That sex is it's not a casual act. It's because of ikad, the fusing of two to one. That's why sex has some of the greatest regrets in our life, has holds some of the greatest pain in our life, because it was created with great power. It's more than a physical act, it's a spiritual act as well. And when it's used well, it delights God. Because God loves it when people are made one. I remember when Jen and I were going through premarital counseling, we had a couple who led us through that. They were in their 60s, easily in their 60s. And they were super comfortable talking about their sex life. (laughs) They were more comfortable talking about their sex life than we were comfortable hearing about their sex life. And I remember one of the advices, we were talking about fighting, and uh, the husband said, um, when you fight, when you do it well, when there's uh, something between you and you reconcile and you experience grace and forgiveness, celebrate it by having sex. Like finish the process of being, being made one again. And I was like, I'm gonna stage so many fights when I get married. <laughs> Just flipping over tables. I will not stand for this. It didn't work. Um, (laughs) The point was to utilize sex for how it was created to be, to make people one, to bring them back together. And thus celebrating your sexuality is celebrating this work, this mysterious work that God does in making two one. Godly romance is about celebrating that unity of becoming one. And finally, what the fourth purpose of marriage is marriage is about recreation. Notice how this story ends, how, chap- uh, how this chapter ends. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and some people say naked, and they felt no shame. This nakedness is more than just physical. Adam and Eve were fully exposed without regret, without wounds, without shame. They were fully known, and they were completely abandoned to do so. But as the story goes, this garden of delight quickly turns into a tragedy. And next chapter, chapter 3, verse 8, the story continues. 
after they ate the fruit of sin and sin entered into this world and brokenness entered into this world in verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. By the way, I just love that relationship, that picture of God walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. That's how we were created to experience that delight of just being in relationship with God. God was walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, uh, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God responded, who told you that you were naked? This for me is some of the saddest verses in all of scripture that for all of time, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit experienced perfect harmony, perfect unity, without any shame, without any regret, without any guilt. And all of a sudden, we hear two questions that God asks that you know broke his heart. You have to ask him, where are you, and who told you that you were naked? That God never created humanity to experience regret, to shame, God never created humanity to hide and to cover. That was never God's intent. But this was the natural response for sin entering into this world, and this is our natural response for sin entering into our life, that we still hide and we still cover ourselves. We hide ourselves in a 70-hour work week. We hide ourselves behind power and prominence. We hide ourselves in abusing substances. We cover ourselves with popularity. We cover ourselves with, uh, with prestige. We cover ourselves with affluence. We cover ourselves with independence. And the work of God is to call us out of our hiding, call us out of our covering, so that we could be made new again, so that we could be recreated. And godly romance can help people do that. It has a unique ability to call people out of hiding and call people out of covering. Why is that? It's because in your marriage, you are exposed. You can't really hide that well. You can't really cover that well. And so in our marriages, we're exposed, but we're exposed with the opportunity to hear the grace and mercy of God. Because one of the deepest longings we have as people is to be known all of us completely known. That's one of the deepest longings, but it's also one of our greatest fears is that we would be made exposed and then we'd be rejected. We would be exposed and then we'd be put down and hear words of cursing that would cut us to the core. But the work of God is that we might be exposed to hear the good grace of Jesus. Tim Keller said it like this in The Meaning of Marriage, a book. He said, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we're also more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. What this is saying is that our brokenness, we are actually, uh, we hide our own brokenness from ourselves. That we are more flawed and broken than we would ever be able to become aware of. That he actually goes deeper than our own understanding. But what is deeper still is the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. That you are more loved and received and cared for by the grace of God than you could ever dream of. And that is something that a godly romance can draw forth. One of the greatest purposes of marriage is to be extension of the mercy and the love of Jesus. 
that when we are exposed so that the love of God can go all the way in us, go all the way down, one of the best things that we can say to our partner is, I see you. I see all of you. And I love you. And the grace of God wants to make you new, and I'm going to do everything I can to help that happen. This is what romance was made for. This is how grace recreates us. If you want a great romance, this is not going to be a part of the the magazine rack when you check out how to have a great romance. If you want to have a great romance, the way you do it is you love each other with a grace that's deeper than you can offer, that you draw from the well of God's love and you pour it on each other every single day. You wash each other every single day. That you remind your spouse of the grace of Jesus. You love all the lies out of the ears of your loved one. You love all of the wounds into healing. You do this over and over and over again until the other remembers who they truly are. Someone that God delights in. Someone that God loves. And some of you in this room maybe still be looking for the perfect mate. Some of you in this room have been praying for that God might change your spouse. Some of you have deep longings that no one's been able to meet. And I just want to let you know that there's only one perfect love and there's only one perfect lover. For the love of God, Christ came to this world so that Christ could be uh, someone who walks through all of this world recreating this garden of delight so that people could experience the love and mercy of God again. And Jesus, ultimately, this love so compelled Jesus to lay down his life, to be fixed to a cross, to be displayed for the world to see, so that through the eyes of love, Christ could see all of the needs of this world and offer himself to come. Experience the delight that you've been created for. Experience the the delight of God. And when we experience that, when we truly know that, then we'll understand what romance is really about.